Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville out in the Shenandoah. I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. We are proud partners with the Science Institute at American University in Washington. We have a really great show again this week. But if you're enjoying it, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We welcome every new listener and appreciate those who've been with us since the beginning. Now to some really, really great guests, James. You know, for two simple kids from LSU and Wake Forest, we're going uptown. Our guests, two Ivy League professors, two of the most knowledgeable and prolific writers about politics. Tom Patterson is a Benjamin C. Bradley Professor of Government and Press, Shorenstein Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. His new book is The Republican Party Destroying Itself and Why It Needs to Reclaim Its Conservative Ideals. Julian Zelizer is a Malcolm Forbes Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University's no longer named Woodrow Wilson School. His book, Newt Gingrich, Bringing Down the House, The Fall of the Speaker and Rise of the Republican Party. Thank you both for being with us. Tom, let me start with you. You make a compelling case that unless Republicans change their doom, I can hear now our three diehard Republican listeners screaming, hey, prof, in this century, for 12 or 20 years, we had the presidency. For 14, the House, half the time the Senate, and dominate state capitals. Tell us why we're in peril. I think time is running out on the GOP. And if you look at the demographics, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a cliff ahead for the Republican Party. Uh, let me give you two examples. Uh, if you look back to the 1930s, the 1932, 36, and 40 elections, uh, that was the making of the long-term New Deal Democratic majority. Uh, and it happened because young voters voted two to one Democratic across those three elections. Now, that's only happened one time since. Uh, and it started in 2004, continued through the 2016 election, where young voters have voted uh, about two to three to two Democratic ever since. Uh, they now account for everybody under 45 years of age. And as they've aged, they've actually voted more Democratic uh, and turned out with greater regularity. Uh, that's going to catch up with the GOP because their voter base is aging. The second example uh, is the uh, Asian Americans. Uh, if you look at Asian Americans and think about Asian Americans, they ought to be Republicans. Uh, and they once were. They have the highest average annual uh, family income in America. Uh, they're twice as likely as other Americans to uh, own a small business. And uh, in 1992, they voted two to one uh, Republican. Uh, since uh, the last two elections, they voted two to one Democratic. Now, how does a party lose a group like that, uh, that they should have uh, by in such dramatic fashion over a relatively short period of time? And I think it's uh, symptomatic uh, of the problems that the Republican ha uh, Party is having attracting minority votes. Well, you know, uh, uh, for a Republican who gets your point, you have to be more inclusive. You can't keep just appealing to this narrow base. If they if they do that and they don't march in lockstep, think Jeff Flake, they're writing their own political obituary. So how do they possibly change? Well, I think my argument is they can't change in the short run. Uh, they're anchored there, I think, by their ideology, uh, by the current president. Uh, and then there's the muscle of right-wing uh, radio and, uh, and television. And, uh, you know, the Republican National Committee after the... Uh, party loss in 2012, did an autopsy. And uh, one of the points it made was they have to reach out uh, particularly to Latinx voters and uh, 
uh, and Asian Americans. And uh, right wing talk wasn't having it. Uh, Ann Coulter said it uh, would destroy America. Uh, and uh, and you're quite right. Uh, when someone tries to reach out, uh, as Eric Cantor did, uh, and he was next in line to become speaker, uh, he says, you know, maybe we ought to do something about uh, this immigration issue. Maybe we ought to have comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, well, right wing uh, media went right after him. And of course, he lost his primary uh, in 2014. And that was pretty much, I think, a signal to other Republicans. Uh, you better lay low on this issue. Uh, and uh, unless they can address it and address it in a, in a really convincing fashion, they're going to continue to have problems with uh, newer immigrant groups. And it's just gotten worse under Trump. Julian, a very important element of this Trump Republican Party is to take no prisoners, smear your opponents as enemies, which your book chronicles uh, really well, be, that, it, that it all began with Newt Gingrich and his takedown of House Speaker Jim Wright in 1989. That's right. I, I, I look at Gingrich and, and the way he reshaped the strategy of the Republican Party in the 1980s. Uh, a kind of partisanship that was willing to destroy institutions, destroy really the ability to govern as a path to partisan power. And uh, part of the point of the book is the story of how it happened, but it's also this is what the party is about. Uh, it, it gets a little uh, to what this discussion has been. It's very hard for the Republicans now to undo this uh, because it's been decades in the building. And it's been the prioritization of partisanship over every other value uh, that elected officials have. And we see the dysfunction every day right now during the pandemic. Yeah, we sure do. You know, there's also a new book on Joe McCarthy. And I can't help but thinking there's a direct line from McCarthy to Roy Cohn to Gingrich to Trump. Attack. Contrition, as an indicted congressman once said, is bullshit. And the big lie, repeated and repeated, takes hold. And that's what they've done. And to some sad extent, it's worked for them. It's absolutely right. Uh, and the, the Gingrich transition is important because Joe McCarthy didn't become the Senate minority leader uh, or the Senate majority leader. Gingrich did uh, become the House minority whip and then the Speaker of the House. So the change that you see in the 80s, and we see this with President Trump, is that element of the party moves into the leadership. And once it's there, it's not contained. James, take over. And then we're going to also have a good Princeton-Harvard dialogue <laughs> between two of the best. <laughs> right. I, I, go, I want to go to Professor Patterson for a second. So I, what you said about Asians, I assumed that the Asians were, you know, heavily populated, which they are in California, Washington State. Do you know that Texas is going to vote almost 5% share Asian? Could be three in Georgia two and a half in North Carolina. I mean, this is an important demographic that you point out. And it, 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 in close elections, it's going to matter, them losing to Asians. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this actually is the fastest growing ethnic group uh, in the United States. They're now about 6% of the total population. And in states like Texas, uh, you know, they're, they increasingly have voting muscle. Uh, now, a lot of the Asian Americans in Texas uh, are Vietnamese Americans who came over uh, during the boat lift. And, uh, but if you look across the South, uh, you know, they're increasingly, uh, uh, you know, you, you see larger and larger numbers of Asian Americans and, uh, and they're voting overwhelmingly Democratic. Okay, I want to go to Professor Zelt. Uh, you talked about, my friend John Barry has become quite famous because of the great influenza. 
wrote a book on the Congress during the, the Jim Wright stuff. He actually had access to Wright. And John thinks that the Wright stuff was overblown, not just by Gingrich, but by the press. And I think the same thing happened in the email, this quote, email scandal, unquote. Did, how much of their ability to succeed rests on their ability to be able to move the press to cover stories which in a more blown up fashion than they actually are? Oh, it was essential. And and I'd say John was incredibly helpful as I wrote this book. He's a friend and, and he gave me access to a lot of the papers he had. Uh, but Gingrich capitalized on the press in the 1980s. He used channels like C-SPAN as a way to just send out his smear directly to viewers. And then he used the work of investigative journalists who were really just doing bits and pieces of stories about right and then weaving together uncooked uh parts of his record into this grand narrative he called Speaker Wright the most corrupt speaker in American history. And, and the journalists who weren't writing this for Gingrich ended up playing directly into his hands. And, and I think this is something the right has done repeatedly. And it's true uh, that you saw this with the emails during 2016. And I suspect you're going to see more of it uh, in 2020. The media is a base for the modern Republican Party, uh, as much as any other outlet. So uh, uh, this question addressed to both of you. I'm 75. I started LSU in 1962. I think I know the reason that the Republican Party rose in the South. I really do. And I think every Southern white liberal my age knows. But I want to go to the event that happened in Neshoba County, Mississippi, August 3rd, 1980. That was, you know, of course, Franklin Reagan famously used the state's rights. And you still have people like David Brooks defending that speech. Did, would either one of you or both of you comment on that sort of Neshoba County speech and its role in the growth of the Republican Party, particularly in the South? I'd be happy to jump in on that, uh, James. Uh, so this is uh, Reagan's first speech after the Republican National Convention. And... Uh, and it was at the county fair, uh, very close to where three civil rights workers were killed uh, during uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, and he made no mention of that. And basically, uh, he pursued a, a version of, uh, of Nixon's Southern strategy. In fact, I think Reagan's role in solidifying the South is underestimated in many ways. Uh, it was Reagan who basically brought white evangelicals fully into the Republican Party. And then he, uh, he really doubled down uh, on Nixon's uh, racial appeals. Uh, we forget that Reagan uh, opposed the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, the 68 Fair Housing Act. Uh, now, those were settled issues by the time he, by the time he became president, but unsettled. Uh, were the busing and affirmative action issues, and he went uh, fully at them. And it was Reagan, I think, who largely conflated uh, welfare with uh, minorities, uh, with his uh, appeals to, uh, about welfare queens and uh, driving around in Cadillacs and having extra kids out of uh, wedlock so they can get more welfare money. Uh, and today, if you look at the polls, even on the Republican side, you see a lot of that conflation where they think about welfare largely in the context of black Americans. 
let me let me jump in and and I want to bring uh, Julian, but I do want you guys to talk to each other. But I have to tell you this story. I first met Newt Gingrich when someone set up a lunch in 1974. I don't know why I did it. Hawk and Dove restaurant. And he was an incredible first date, Julian. He went and he talked about how his role model was Linwood Holton, the progressive governor of Virginia. He said, he said the party has to be pro-environment, pro-civil rights. He was disdainful of Reagan. And it was only on the second or third or fourth date I realized he doesn't believe in a thing. He doesn't have any principle except self-interest. And let's just take race. He started off, as I said, let's be a champion of civil rights. Then he used race whenever possible. He once admonished Chris Christie not to appoint a Muslim judge because they all believe in Sharia law. He turned right on immigration. He defended Trump on the birther. This is a man without any beliefs, really, except himself and self-promotion. No, absolutely. His, his belief is power, uh, power for himself and power for his party. The other example uh, is, is ethics. You know, he was going after Jim Wright in 1989, in large part around a book deal where Jim Wright, the speaker, sold books uh, in bulk of, of speeches, uh, which was legal. It was it was fine with the ethics rules, but it looked bad. Uh, and at that time, he himself is under investigation for a book deal and for the way that he raised money from interest groups to promote the book. So this is a story with Newt Gingrich, uh, and obviously it culminates in the 1998 uh, impeachment, uh, which you guys know well, uh, where he is not living at all by the principles he's talking about, which suggests he doesn't really care about those principles. But uh, I would just kind of jump in on that. Just to, just to tell people, uh, I mean, you're being kind. He was, he was leading the impeachment against Bill Clinton for lying about sex, while as a married man, he was sleeping with a house staffer. So just just to put that on the record. Go ahead. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, that Neshova speech is important. And I think there's a lot of people looking back at conservatism now and trying to make sense of the movement, because at the time, it's a classic example of, of using uh, kind of coded moments or coded words to appeal to white backlash politics. And there's always this debate about Reagan doing that, what it meant, what it meant to uh, supporters. And I think what we see certainly with the Trump presidency is a lot of this is just coming out in the open now. The code words aren't even used. Uh, but I think it's been a, a part of conservatism that some Republicans like Stuart Stevens are starting to reckon with. Um, and, and I think people need to look at moments like Reagan's Neshoba speech to understand exactly how the coalition was being stitched together. Right. Also, Reagan referred to uh, young black as strapping young bucks. I wonder what that's not even a dog whistle. I mean, honestly. Well, that, yeah. And yeah, I mean, come on. All right. So, but, but to, to, to move forward here, it, in the Professor Patterson, it looks like they made a bet on the South. And if trends are correct, it looks like the South is turning on them, particularly from Virginia to Florida. I mean, you take Virginia to Carolina, even South, even South North Carolina for sure, but soon to be South Carolina, Georgia for sure. They've all kind of, the demographic composition of these states are changing where that kind of message is becoming less and less attractive. Texas is another example, right? There's some chance the biggest, most popular state Trump carries is Tennessee. But maybe both of you could weigh in on how the South has kind of turned on the, the, the Republican Party as we know it today. But, but I think we was born in Neshoba County, Mississippi on August 3rd, 1980. But at any rate, I'd like to get your reaction to that. 
Well, I think the uh, Republican Party is this, is stuck with the South that uh, it started with. Um, you know, in, in many ways, the South redefined the Republican Party. Uh, if you look at the Republican Party in the 50s, early 60s, and then compare it to what it was under Reagan, uh, it had completely reinvented itself. Um, it flipped on the race issue. Uh, it had become very conservative on uh, social cultural issues like abortion. Um, and it had become the, the party of small government. Uh, and that was not its legacy. Uh, and it had started out as a federal party. Uh, and uh, by the 1980s, it was a states' rights party, uh, very much rooted in Southern values. And I think that's where it stuck. And uh, the South is changing, as you suggest, and uh, but the Republican Party has difficulty, I think, accommodating that change for reasons we've talked about. Uh, and as the South changes, uh, more and more of these places are coming into play. So obviously, North Carolina is already in play, Georgia increasingly so, Florida is clearly in play. And uh, I think within two or three elections, uh, Texas uh, is going to be a toss up. So. Uh, you know, demographic change nationally is not only catching up with the GOP, but in the South particularly. If I could jump in, there's another change that happens, I think, in that period. And it's it's the Republicans kind of losing as much interest. This gets back to Gingrich in governance, that uh, it becomes almost an anti-governance party, that it embraces this form of destructive partisanship where the mechanisms of legislating, of negotiating, of making decisions not only bipartisanship, but even within the party, start to fall apart. It's a party trafficking and disinformation. It's willing to take processes like the budget uh, and use them in partisan battle. And uh, I think, you know, this has been a long time coming. I do think that shift starts in the 80s. I think a lot of uh, younger Republicans are comfortable with this because a dysfunctional government fits what they're trying to argue philosophically. Uh, and, and what people are seeing now, including in these southern areas, is what this means when we are faced with a genuine uh, horrendous national crisis like a pandemic. It, it renders the leadership of the party simply unable to deal with the policies needed. And so I think that's another shift that is also playing out right now, which might hurt the party standing uh, in places like Florida that are struggling right now as the virus surges. Julian, Tom, we've, we've mentioned several touchstones, all of which I think are terribly relevant. The Gingrich Speaker Ripe and the Shoba County Fair. Uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1965 said when he signed the Voting Rights Act, we have now seated the South for a generation. It's actually been two generations. Uh, but I think another one was George uh, George W. George H. W. Bush, I think, really did believe in governance. I didn't agree with a lot of his policies, but whether it was the budget deal, whether the American for Disabilities Act, and he went, and the message the Republicans sent to him was, in 1992, you're gone. Uh, I think that was another touchstone. Because I do think, as I say, disagreeing with some of his policies, he was a governance Republican. Hadn't been one since. Well, I think increasingly it's a party that doesn't tolerate its moderates. And I think uh, George H.W. Bush might have been the first example. But, um, you know, and, and Julian can speak more to this than I can, but... Uh, you know, one of the things that Gingrich did was try to purge as many moderates from the uh, party and committee leadership as he could and try to recruit as many uh, right-wing challengers uh, and uh, when they had an open seat, right-wing candidates. Uh, 
to shift the party to the right. And, uh, you know, I, I think the party has moved very, very strongly to the right. And, uh, and they're pretty well locked in place. One of the things that's keeping them there, by the way, is the, uh, is right wing media. Uh, if you're a moderate within the Republican party in the leadership, uh, elected position, uh, you got to keep your head down, uh, when it comes to the, uh, right-wing media. Eric Cantor is an example. Uh, Jeb Bush's candidacy, I think, for the presidency in 2016 is another example. They went after him from the day he announced. Uh, and uh, there were other things, obviously, that uh, uh, crippled the, the Bush candidacy in 2016. Hell, they're going after Liz Cheney now. Yeah, no, and they listened to, the, you know, John McCain is another example. Uh, you know, John McCain was was a pretty conservative on policy, pretty conservative on policy issues, but he believed in accommodation. He believed in governing. And uh, at the time of his death, he was twice as popular among uh, Democrats as he was among Republicans. And uh, you look at the reason for that. Well, look to right wing talk radio and uh, how they worked McCain over week after week. So, Julian, I, I, I have a I have a observation that if if things go the way that I think they're going to go, we're going to end up with a massive Democratic victory in November. And the Republican Party is going to have to figure out what to do. Uh, where do you think, and, and by the way, if you look at the 2022 Senate map, it is awful for Republicans. Just awful. So if I'm correct, and let's just assume for the moment that I am, which is I, I agree is always a dangerous assumption, but I, if I'm correct, and they suffer a big wipeout. And I'd like to get you, Julie, and you, Tom, and you, Al. What do you? How do you think a new Republican Party is going to emerge from this defeat? I mean, I'm as the historian, I see things both ways all the time, and I, I think there's two paths. One, if you're right, and and I guess I'm still more on the fence if this happens, especially with the questions of voter turnout uh, and and how the pandemic affects that. Uh, if the defeat is another 1984, I, I do believe, uh, or another 1964, I do believe that's the kind of massive impact the party needs uh, to shake some room for younger leaders uh, to start to say this is not a path for the next decade or so, that, that we're killing our entire party, we're killing our coalition, this isn't going to work anymore. We're, we're rendering ourselves powerless rather than keeping ourselves in power. So so if your prognostication was right, I could clearly see uh, the only path that makes sense right now for the party to change. That said, you know, it could be in a moment like 2009 where uh, the Democratic victories were not as grand as they might be this time. It was still a narrower uh, uh, situation in Congress, but the party doubled down on what it was doing. And, you know, it, it, it might go the Tucker Carlson path rather than the path of trying to uh, reform and fix what what's gone wrong after these decades. So I, I, I mean, I, I see that first path possible if the victory outcomes are what you say. Tom. So, uh, yeah, let, let's assume that uh, you're right, James. And um, and let's also assume that the Democrats don't kind of mess it up uh, if they come into power in 2021. Uh I think the Republican Party is going to have a lot of difficulty reinventing itself uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, and again, re referring to the autopsy that the RNC did after the 2012 election, I don't think right wing talk uh, is going to hear it. Uh, 
that's not their image of the party. And they're going to fight against uh, any kind of change uh, of that kind. In fact, uh, after the 2018 midterm debacle for the Republican Party, uh, Limbaugh and others argued that the party's mistake in 2018 was that it ran too moderate uh, an effort. And, uh, and then you look at the base. Uh, this base is with Trump. This base is a populist base. Uh, I think they believe uh, in where the Republican st Party stands right now. And again, you look at the 2016 uh, presidential primaries on the Republican side and how difficult it is for a moderate to do well there. So, and there isn't much moderate leadership left in the party. So where's that leadership going to come from? So I think it's going to take a series of election defeats uh, increasingly devastating to the party before it's going to look carefully at itself and reinvent itself. Albert, what do you think? No, I, I agree. I think uh, uh, Trump, uh, Trump leaves uh, in the, uh, next January, but Trumpism doesn't. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of finger-pointing retribution to people who uh, they'll call it a fake election. They'll say that they'll people who desert him. Uh, I think it's going to be a bloodbath far worse than 1965. And whatever you thought of him, Nixon was one of the few people who could have kind of bridged that divide uh, back in 1967-68. I doubt there's a Republican out there could do that. And I think Tom and Julian are dead on right. It's going to take a series of devastating defeats. Well, I'll just make one observation. When I came with political awareness, the most famous Republican was Dwight Eisenhower. Today it's Tucker Carlson. <laughs> that would give you some idea of where this party is, is going. Well, that might, that might be news to Donald Trump, James, but... Um, right, right. Well, from, yeah, after, I'm just after kidding. After Trump, yeah, right? I, know, I, know what you, I know what you mean. So what's going to happen, I think, if, if the election is successful as I am, the Democratic Party, the, the, the press is fixated on the left wing of the Democratic Party and the liberal wing or whatever. I think the Democrat, the Congressional Party, is going to be more moderate than anybody anticipates because look what senators are going to be coming to town. I mean, Cal Cunningham and Steve Bullock and John Hickenlooper and Mark Kelly, Al Gross, uh, maybe M.J. Hager. I mean, what we're going to be sending... Sarah Gideon. Yeah, Sarah Gideon. I mean, not to slight anybody at all here. Uh, maybe Amy McGrath or maybe James, uh, Jamie Harrison. But but what's coming to town is not going to be a bunch of people from the Bronx or Queens or, or, or you know, central Boston. The party is going to end up, I, th I think, in, in some ways more, I don't say use the word moderate, but less leftist than people are going to think. They're going to get a reaction on that. Well, that's not unlike 2018. I mean, the the midterms created that tension or exacerbated the tension. The Democrats are always more divided than the GOP these days uh, uh, with, you know, the Katie Hunters, the AOCs, Pelosi's been balancing all of this. But I do think there's areas of policy that can bridge even some of those moderates uh, issues uh, such as the environment that whoever the leader would be in the Senate, I, I assume Schumer would still be, but I, I don't know. Uh, can use as coalitional issues uh, and even issues of, of creating accountability after everything that's happened under President Trump. So, so there might be ways, even with what you're saying, which would be true, uh, that the party isn't in some kind of internal civil war. 
Uh, and I think there'll be so much energy after the Trump presidency and after everything that has happened, uh, even public health as a policy issue. That will be an umbrella issue that a conservative senator, Democratic senator, and someone from uh, New York can easily focus their attention on that. I think that problem can be overcome. Julian, I have a column coming out in about an hour, which I agree with James totally in the Senate, equally true of the House. I think they're going to pick up House seats. And the vast majority of the House Democratic Caucus will be Pelosi Democrats, which just tells you how much that term has changed. That really is mainstream left of center Democrats. And and the AOCs, who are quite skillful, will make noise, but Pelosi will run the House. Uh, and that will be good for a President Biden. So, so Tom, I want to ask you something because you're I've been following you and reading you my entire political career. Obviously, I've had a, a great deal of respect for your observations. What is the most hopeful thing that you see about American politics now? And there got to be something hopeful somewhere. Shit, it just, it's, it just has to be. <laughs> so, so help me out here, man. I, I do think America's better angels are stepping up. I, um, you know, I, I, we are a deeply divided country, but, um, you know, you look at the opinion polls uh, around uh, these police killings, uh, and uh, I'm pretty optimistic, actually, that, uh, you know, one election never changes things fundamentally, but I, I think that this election is a turning point, and uh, if the Democrats take power, uh, I think there will be a new tone, and uh, I agree entirely with uh Alan Julian, uh, the real muscle in the Republican or the Democratic Party is is center left. It's not left. Uh, you know, portraying the Democratic Party as a as a left party is really a Republican talking point that gets magnified uh, by the media. But uh, you know, this is a leftist. That's where the muscle is. It's not only at the leadership; it's at the base. Uh, so look, we had the Demo- the Democrats had a clear presentation. Bernie Sanders was the most message-disciplined candidate I've ever seen in my life. He raised more money than anybody. He had a clear view of what he wanted to do as president. Joe Biden was just who he was. Democrats overwhelmingly, not even close, chose Biden. I mean, the rank-and-file Democrat at votes and primaries. I mean, this was not a close call. Yet, the the cultural and media influence that the far left has far outstrips its ability to connect with voters outside of a few urban hotspots. And Julian, do do I have a point here? I mean, because it just seems evident to me that people voting and they said, well, they got to do this for Sanders have to respect him. What what I would say on TV, let's respect the, the Democratic voter. Don't they count? Well, I, I think you're right. Uh, and I, I think, obviously, the, the Democratic Party has to understand the leaders, where, where the weight of the party is. There's still ways to get energy uh, from the progressive parts of the party. Uh, that's a, you know, historically, FDR drew on people who were much to the left of him as he crafted ideas such as social security or unemployment benefits. LBJ is the same kind of story. There's a functional way to handle this problem you're talking about. Uh, 
even if the media is more focused on on the left wing elements, someone like Pelosi understands how to bring that together. And uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily an insurmountable problem. And it doesn't mean you kind of have to banish one side or the other. Look at Biden. I mean, Biden's gotten the nomination. He remains very strong in the polls, but he's actually moved to the left a bit on on a number of issues and he's doing okay. So I think coalitional is the way to go for this party that's broadening. It's a good problem for the party to have. You know, when you don't have this problem, it means you're the Republicans and it means that you just have a very narrow slice of the electorate and then it's easy just to be consistent and focus on one set of issues. Yeah, well, I yeah, no, I agree but but, but you know, we're going to we got we got we got several more minutes but Julian, let me say one thing. I take a backseat to no one in my disdain for Newt Gingrich just because of what I think is a total lack of character. One thing that's amazing, though, he has remained on the national scene, able to command you know, television presence, invited to Aspen Institute seminars for over 40 years. That's really remarkable. Almost, There's almost no politician I can think of other than Edward Kennedy, who remained on the national, other than the president, uh, or an Edward Kennedy who has remained on the national scene that long. How does he do it? Well, it's the same skills he used to rise uh, in the beginning. I mean, he really understands very well how the media works. I, I think Twitter's a natural platform for him because he's always understood how you can give controversy and controversial statements and garner attention. Uh, and also, he is one of the senior statesmen of the party. I know everyone likes to point to the Bush family, but it's really Newt Gingrich. And, and that is the conversation we're having, meaning that is what the party uh, is about. And so it's natural. There's a lot of space for him in the conservative ecosystem of the media uh, and, and think tanks to continue being a presence. But, but he is someone who understands his environment extraordinarily well. Uh, he has from the beginning of his career, and he does right through the Mount Rushmore speech the other day when he was one of the first to give positive commentary or after the Chris Wallace interview. He knows exactly what to say, so we'll all pay attention. James, what was it that Ezra, what was it Ezra Klein said about Newt Gingrich? It's the best quote in the history. He said, Newt Gingrich is a stupid person's idea of what a smart person sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish I would have said that. I just, I, I I mean, that is just the most devastating. And the reason the quote is so devastating is true. You know, I mean, I think that sums him up, you know, in so many different ways you, you, that you couldn't. But his, his ability to, you just have to sit back sometimes in awe of the fact that he's been relevant for so long. He's like Bob Woodward. I can't remember a time when he wasn't around. Right. No, it, it's absolutely true. And he's used, he's always used his professorial background, uh, oh, oh. the PhD in history to package himself as this big ideas Republican. But I think it's just not what he's really about. It's this other side, which is really what he's up to, what his contribution is, meaning raw, pure partisan strategy. Uh, but he uses this other image very well to keep himself relevant that way. Julian, when, when I was at Bloomberg, we broke a story when he was running for president that while he was railing against the special interest in Washington, uh, he was he was getting uh, you know lots of dough from Freddie Mac. And when he finally had to admit it, he said, well, I wasn't a lobbyist for Freddie Mac. I was their historian. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, he, he is shameless. 
And that's always been true. I've probably done 20 paid speeches with Newt Gingrich. And I'm just sitting there, you know, on the stage, and you got to be nice because the realtors and the home builders of beer distributors are paying you a lot of money. And I just sit there thinking, man, this guy is really full of shit. <laughs> but, you know, people would like clap and, you know, nod and like he was really saying something. It was, it was truly like amazing. Oh. To watch this in real time. Yeah, I have a, as I said earlier, he is a great first and second date. But man, what a lousy relationship. Tom Patterson, let me ask you this: as you look at the Republican Party, and I think your pessimism about the near term uh, is came out is justified. Are there any one or two figures you say, boy, they have the potential? Uh, if only the party would listen to them, or is it just barren now? I think it's pretty well stripped itself of the kind of leaders that. Uh, you know, you look, the Republican Party had this problem uh, in the late 19th century where, uh, you know, it got into bed with the robber barons. Uh, but there were some people like Theodore Roosevelt uh, that could lead them out of that that particular problem. Uh, boy, I look around in the in the in the GOP and uh, I, I don't see any leaders that are even close uh, to being able to provide that kind of leadership. Uh much less uh, be listened to uh, if uh, if they tried. This is a party that nominated, elected Donald Trump as president and a party that has stood by Donald Trump despite everything we've seen. I think everyone in this conversation has followed politics, has seen it, and, and it's clear how abnormal and how destructive what's going on in the White House is. And when a party still embraces this, when a party produces this, this goes incredibly deep in what the GOP is now about and, and has become. And I just I think it's going to be really hard to just see one person leading them out of what really is political darkness. By the way, have any of y'all kept up with this story out of Ohio? I mean, shit, I've heard of corruption before. I, I, I know it's, you know, it's an indictment and not a trial. But, man, this stuff is eye popping. Well, the Speaker of the House was indicted yesterday, along with four top Republican lobbyists in the state. I mean, really, really prominent people. And it was basically, um, I, I mean, something approaching, James, maybe I'm exaggerating, but something like a $60 million shakedown. $60 million bribes. Yes, yeah, $60 million. I mean, they're going to, I can tell you, when you have that this level of corruption, and don't ever forget this, the number one issue in American politics is corruption. All right. No one talks about it in the right way. This is going to hurt them profoundly in Ohio. I mean, this if if if, if in, I assume this is you know Republican U.S. Attorney in Cincinnati. At least he was pointing about Republican. It is. Yeah. This, this is just eye popping. I mean, shit. I've heard of like giving people jobs or contracts or you know the architect or building or the engineering. I mean, sixty billion dollars, and they got a. This energy company, nuclear plant, got a billion dollars in state aid. It was a great investment for them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, you'd think they'd be smart enough to do official corruption and not the illegal form. But, uh, you know, another recent indicator of of where the Republican Party is, uh, I don't know if you followed the selection of the state party chair down in Texas, but, uh, you know, they picked this uh, right wing conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, veiled racist. I mean, it was unbelievable who they would choose to lead the party. Uh, that gives you a good sense of what 
not only the the base is, but what the activist base is uh, in a state like Texas. And uh, certainly there are other states where, uh, you know, in Massachusetts, I think Republicans uh, have held to the, to their values. And, uh, you know, Charlie Baker, I think, has been an excellent governor in this state. But he's one of the last few kind of progressive Republicans still standing in that party. Boy, that's for sure. Hey, James, you have any final word? Well, I mean, I just, I love doing this show. And I mean, I'm so glad that we got these guests that we have today. I mean, it, 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 I think it just so much expresses what our values for the show is that we get people that know what they're talking about, have a good conversation. Uh, it goes without saying, I'd recommend both of these books to anybody that has anything more than just a marginal interest in politics. I mean, it's a real privilege to be able to interview uh, Thomas, you and Julian. Just a big honor to have you on the show. I wish you all the best. Well, I do too. And I would just say to all listeners, uh, Tom Patterson's Is the Republican Party Destroying Itself? And Julian Zelazar bringing down the House, the fall of Speaker and the rise of the Republican Party. They both really, if you care about politics, are must-reads. Julian and Tom, thank you so much. Uh, and I'm glad we didn't get into any Princeton-Harvard rivalry. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Oh, Alan, James, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And Julian, it's nice, been nice being on with you. Yes, thank you, everyone. Man, that was good. I mean, that those those really are two terrific books. They, you know, they really are. I mean, I started off in both with a fair amount of knowledge, and I learned a lot in reading both books. Right. I mean, just I think this is so much of what our show needs to be about and is about is seeing these, seeing these kind of books and ideas that come forward and and giving them a real airing so they can talk about what they found and what they believe and what they've researched. Why don't you tell our listeners and subscribers what we're thinking about doing next week? Because it's going to be a, a little bit of a different kind of show. Right. What we want to do next week is to try to address the question of the state legislative races. That's the sleeper issue this year. Uh, if Joe Biden wins the White House, which I think we all believe is a near certainty, the Democrats take control of the Senate, they add to the House, they win a couple important governorships, and they lose in the state legislative races in North Carolina, Texas, Georgia, uh, Florida, uh, Wisconsin, it's going to be a redux of 2011 when they controlled the redistricting and they went for a whole decade and they were able to have a huge impact on the state and federal level. And we really want to address that next week. We'd love to have a guest like Kelly Ward Burton if we can. But James, it is a really, really big, if under the radar issue. It's a huge issue and it's, it impacts so much and it's so not glamorous. And I, I just want us to use our forum to bring this message to, to Democratic, particularly Democratic donors, that we're getting clobbered uh, in terms, I mean, we're winning, we're great, we're raising these Senate candidates, we're raising $30 million in them, that's wonderful. But, in, in, you know, as you know, the, the smaller the race, the more impact that money is gonna have. If you give Biden $1,000, that's going to have much less impact than giving a state Senate candidate in Georgia $1,000. And, and, you know, the, I, I, so I hope we can get Kelly. If we don't, we'll get someone else. But I, I think this really merits a, a serious conversation and a serious look at. 
Well, there was a there was a book written on what the Republicans did in 2011 uh, with the uh, aptly uh, titled Rat Fucked, uh, in which uh, it brilliantly captured exactly the way they diabolically and legally set out to dominate the redistricting after 2010 census. Uh, and if there's a repeat of that, Democrats will pay a price for the whole decade. So I absolutely agree. James, before we go, we, you know, last week we started to do the outrage of the week. You can't do it singular when it comes to Trump. We weren't going to do Trump. But I just two things that just struck me. The, the lesser one, though incredibly outrageous, is that he tried to get the Brits to move the British Open to his golf course. I mean, honest to God, this is about making money. That's what this presidency is about. That really, really, really is, is profoundly offensive. But worse, this guy is trying to start a race war, starting in Portland and wherever else he can go. Well, there's one outrage of all outrages, and that's the shit in Ohio. I mean, this is just, this is like, it, it, maybe it's so big, the public can't get their arms around it. I doubt that. It's just stunning the amount of dollars they're talking about. Right. And apparently they have tapes, they have documents, they have anything that you, you can think of. And this is going to hurt them in Ohio. Yeah. I promise you, this is, this is unbelievable. I would love to go and let's get a adjustment of the cost, the bribery and Teapot Dome or Watergate or the worst things that Eddie Edwards did in Louisiana or James Michael Curley in Boston. And when you adjust it for right. current dollars, it won't come anywhere near $60 million. Yeah, maybe we need to, in addition to, to the, on the state legislatures, maybe we need to find the best kind of report in Ohio that's covering this thing. And, Talk about it because I, I can't get my I can't I can't get my arms around it. I think that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, well, all right. This was a great show. Uh, again, I thank Tom and Julian so much, and I hope you're safe out there in the Shenandoah, even if bored. All right. Well, I'm not bored when we do the show, so that's good. No, I'm not do- bored when we <laughs> do the show. Week. And 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 don't forget tonight, Thursday night, Tony Fauci throws out the first ball. We won't be there. There we go. We'll watch it. <laughs> go Nats. Go Nats. Thank you, James. All right, man. You bet. All right. Great show. And I want to thank all of you for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. Uh, email us, politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate the show with a five-star review, we hope. We'll be back next week, and I promise it'll be equally good. Well, it'll be as good. Let's just put it that way. Take care. Take care.